0: Kids, I'm Michelle Carlo and this show is Fish Out of Agua. Welcome to the 1980s, kids. Last week, we learned that sometimes, if you persist, a dream can come true. This week, we learned what happens when you encounter a fancy breakfast buffet after two years of living on hot dogs, canned peanut butter, and welfare cheese. And that flock of seagull haircuts and Debo t-shirts were considered gender fluid in a Chinatown Pathmark parking lot. Yep, this is the Attack of the Republicans meets Redemption birthday episode. But right now, let's get into that Back to the Future mood with Gary Newman's Cars from 1979. In the 1980s, people were done obsessing over politics and sex. Now it was all about show me the money. Almost from the second B-list actor-turned-politician Ronald Reagan took office and the Iranian hostages were released, a new deal was promised to the American people, Reaganomics, mourning in America. Only not so much for my family. Yes, I had achieved my dream of getting into the School of Visual Arts. But would I be allowed to stay? Dreaming might have been free, but school sure wasn't. That was Blondie with Dreaming from the 1979 album Eat to the Beat. And now, Chapter 34 of Fish Out of Agua, Attack of the Republicans. I almost had to drop out of the School of Visual Arts before I even began. From tuition, to books, to the endless amount of overpriced art supplies that needed to be da- bought, to my car free, back and forth, I was on my own. Even though my father had said he wouldn't help me go to art school, the reality was he couldn't help. He still hadn't found work, and we were still on welfare. I remember the big orange blocks of cheese that were impossible to cut or melt, which were better off used as doorstops, and the cans, yes, the cans of peanut butter that tasted as if it had been made from the shells. It made me guilty I'd ever complained about my mother's Libby's corned beef, Picarillo. But worse, though, were the endless, demeaning intake interviews my parents had to go on. On one of them, the welfare people told my mother and father that our family couldn't continue to get benefits if I stayed in college, because now that I was about to turn 21, I was too old to be in school anymore. My father wasn't a violent man, not at all, ever, that I ever saw. But as he told it, he stood up upon hearing that and upended the table saying, Goddamn son of a bitch, my daughter stays in school! And they never mentioned it again. I asked my mother about this. Believe me, I knew that it took a lot for her to leave the house to be there. And she never said, said that it did happen that way. But... She never said that it didn't, either. Even with my two jobs at the art supply store at Gimble's on 86th Street and at the Bronx Council on the Arts, where I had once worked on the summer youth employment program and while where now I was a part-time youth counselor and teacher. So between those two jobs and my tuition assistance program, TAP grant, I still didn't have enough money to buy what I needed. I hadn't applied for any other financial aid. I just didn't want to answer the race or ethnicity questions on the many forms I'd had to fill out. By now I was so disgusted by anything having to do with what I was or wasn't, I'd put redhead for ethnicity, and for race, human. Luckily, School of Visual Arts guidance counselors, especially the beautiful and compassionate and capable Pam Miller were nothing like the ones at Lehman High School. Pam tracked me down one day, actually bringing me out of a class, and she she took me to her office and asked me to bring in my birth certificate, which, of course, said Mother's Place of Birth, Puerto Rico. In Pam's office, I learned that in my lifetime, I had become a separate race. Somewhere between the 60s and the 80s, I was now a Hispanic. Pam handed me a stack of forms. I refilled them all out and got some money. Pam also said that I had been doubly stupid for evading those questions because there was so much other help that I qualified for that other students couldn't. It didn't register with me at the time, but almost everyone at the School of Visual Arts was, you guessed it, white. So when I applied for financial aid the following year, I also applied for something called the Minority Student Internship Program that happened over the summers. Out of nearly 1,000 applicants, only 12 people were accepted each year, and this year, I got in. I was going to have a paid summer job at a real advertising agency and make professional contacts that could help me when I graduated. And Pam Miller said, see Michelle, I knew you could do it. So that next June, I walked into the orientation for interns on the 42nd floor of a big advertising agency on 6th Avenue, and I was about 20 minutes late. Like many others of the Latin persuasion, I occasionally, occasionally suffer from an affliction called Latin People Time, or LPT. LPT is a subcategory of Colored People Time, or CPT, a misapplication of the space-time continuum that causes the afflicted to leave their house at the time they are supposed to be wherever it is they are going. It's a joke, but it's not a joke because I still, to this day, fight against it daily. When I got to that internship, I was afraid to open the door. What would I find in there? But I figured, hey, we're all minorities. I bet you I'm not the only one who's late. In fact, <laughs> I might even be the first to arrive. And then I pushed open the door and found out I was wrong. Not only had everyone inside already been waiting for me for over 15 minutes, the orientation had already begun. I ran into the conference room and joined the group. And I could tell who they were because they were young, brown, and beige. And everyone else was older and paler. As I tried to worm my way into the middle where I hoped I would blend in, I overheard someone behind me say, Who is this white girl, and what is she doing here? I was surrounded by little yuppie wannabes wearing sport jackets with pink and green Latigra polo shirts and boat shoes or little bow blouses under Benetton vests and low-heeled pumps. I was wearing a violet zebra print off-the-shoulder t-shirt, skinny black jeans, and white capizios. Yes, I admit to wearing that, but before you laugh, you tell me what you were wearing that summer of 1982. We all went down to sit at the conference table, and I noticed how my fellow internees all spoke in what, to my ears, seemed to be business-speak. And I suppose everyone was trying to transcend their neighborhoods, and correctly so. So I was the only idiot asking—no, not asking— but axing, hey, could I get a coffee? And drawing cartoons on my writing pad instead of listening to the speakers. I also noticed that none of my fellow interns had spoken to me at all. And after we had received our assignments and were about to leave, I was called back. The leaders of the group asked me to please not be late in the future. And by the way, where are my parents from again? I told them that both my parents were Puerto Rican and that my mother was born there. If I hadn't said that, I think I might have been thrown out. And as it turned out, my internship was at that same agency. The first morning, there was a welcome breakfast for the other intern who had been assigned there and me, and I remember standing at the window just staring at Central Park. I had never seen anything like that view before. I had never been that high up in the building before. And then, they brought in the breakfast buffet. I had never seen a croissant before either, and that first morning, I ate three of them with about a half stick of butter spread on top divided among them and was nauseous the entire afternoon. We interns in the program also had weekly lunch meetings in that same conference room, at which we would talk about our experiences working. At our first one, none of the other internees would talk to me again, but I didn't care, because when the lunch buffet came in, I saw food I hadn't seen since Nikki and Tommy's wedding at the Marina del Rey. More croissants, fat boiled shrimp, little crackers with smoked salmon, little red potato slices topped with creamy stuff, and delicious, scrumptious, crunchy, squishy, orange fish dogs I would learn with salmon caviar, and equally delicious little jam-filled cakes, I learned, were called pet Forests. And since what I had been eating at home for the past two years was basically hot dogs, brick cheese, and peanut shells, I just ate and ate until I realized everyone was looking at me. And I stopped and I was embarrassed because I noticed that no one was eating much at all. And I thought, well, why do they have all this food if no one was supposed to eat it? I didn't know it at the time, but, welcome to advertising. The reality was, I was afraid. I was afraid that I had gotten this internship, not because of any merit on my part, but because of an oversight, a mistake, and in the back of my mind, I was thinking that, well, I might never see food like this again, so I better eat it now before they threw me out, so at least I knew I would have something. And then I would have to go back to that four-room, fifth-floor tenement walk-up and rot because I wouldn't be able to afford to go back to school because I would have lost the internship because I was a fraud. And that would be exactly what I deserved because I did not know how to fit in. Luckily, that positive train of thought ended up being interrupted because we were all going on a tour of the agency, and the first place we were going to visit was my cubicle. Did I say lucky? When I realized where we were going, I wanted to go break one of those hermetically sealed windows and jump out and impale myself in Central Park because I'd decorated my cubicle like the full teenage bedroom I'd never really had and suddenly realized that maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Almost every spare inch of wall was filled with flyers I had ripped from the walls of the Ritz Irving Plaza and Peppermint Lounge, and almost every inch of my desk was crammed with little knick-knacks I had no room for in my half-room at home, like a foot-wide rubber spider suspended from the ceiling and a tall can full of peacock feathers, along with a small collection of beer mugs that I had appropriated from the just-mentioned clubs. And did I mention that one wall was covered in tinfoil and blinking Christmas tree lights? And to top it off, on my drawing board... Not agency work, but a light box with a sheet of tracing paper and a T-shirt taped to it. That summer was one of the New York City Dr. Pepper concert summers. They had once been held at the old Wallman skating rink in Central Park that had been broken for as long as anyone I knew could remember. Over the past couple of summers, Pasha and I had seen Debo, the Pretenders, the Talking Heads, the B-52s, the Go-Go's, the Ramones, Blondie, and many, many more groups— You didn't even need to buy a ticket. You could just climb up on a rock and watch and hear everything. But this year the concerts were going to be at Pier 84 on the west side and Pasha and I had a plan. He was working in a silkscreen studio that summer and after hours we would sneak in. He would sneak me in. I would go there and he would sneak me in and we would print t-shirts that we designed. We were going to sell them at the concert for $10 each. The t-shirt on my desk was a design Pasha had drawn from King Crimson's Discipline album. I was trying to make it go around the barcode. Because, well, 1984 was only a couple of years away, and we all knew what that meant. We'd all be imprinted with barcodes, of course. as we were going to be cutting edge. I tried to block the drawing board by standing in front of it, but one of the most yuppie-looking male interns... He wore a different weird patterned sweater every week, which, as far as I knew, may have inspired The Cosby Show, which was still two years away. And he looked at the t-shirt and said to me, You like Robert Fripp? And out of my mouth came, Like him? (laughs) He asked us to make these t-shirts for him! Which was, of course, a total lie. But I started talking about the Dr. Pepper concerts and about my boyfriend and I making t-shirts for them, which was... Technically true, but not really. And the intern with the sweater just said, Wow! And then asked me questions about where we bought our T-shirts and what kind of ink we used. And a couple of the other interns then began a discussion about overhead, licensing, and profit margins and suggested maybe it would be better if Postra and I set up a booth. And then the internship leader came back to get us and finished the tour. But when everyone left, the interns who had been in my cube with me and had seen the t-shirt said, See you next week. And that gave me an idea. Every week, I was asked how my t-shirt business was going. And every week, my stories became more and more embellished. I would talk about what concert we had seen. True. Except I didn't say that we usually sold only two or three shirts at each. The most was five. I talked about how Robert Fripp himself had one of our t-shirts. Well, half true. Tasha had thrown one on stage while they were playing, and the best, how I had met Blondie in the bathroom and gave her toilet paper under the stall and didn't even ask her for an autograph at all, which was a total lie. But at least people were listening to me, and at our weekly lunch meetings, I was now part of the group, and one of the girls also confessed to me how she had wanted to eat all the food that first day at the breakfast, too, because her family was still on welfare, and how she thought that, whoa, I had a lot of guts to to do that. And I answered, yeah, but I got to watch it or I'm going to get a gut, right? (laughs) And everyone laughed with me. I had never met people like this before. Brown and beige people who had voted for Ronald Reagan, which I thought was crazy. I had grown up listening to people talk about the movement and the establishment and the man and whose apartments had pictures of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King on the walls. And when I mentioned this at home one night, my father said, "'Those kids are smart, not like you. I voted for Reagan. What did I get from Carter?' "'Welfare.'" And my brother Kevin, who wouldn't be able to vote for president until 1984 and who would vote for Ronald Reagan, said, "'Yeah, Michelle, we're Republicans now, and you should get with the program.'" That's September, Kevin's new favorite program would be Family Ties. He would also enter Baruch College as a finance major, start wearing La Tigre polo shirts and Lacoste polo shirts, and call himself the White Anglo-Saxon Puerto Rican. As for me, I did get with the program. I learned a lot at that internship besides how not to make a glutton of myself at a catered lunch and what was and was not appropriate for office decor. I learned I had a good design eye and was told I should consider majoring in advertising design and become an art director instead of the cartoonist or illustrator I had originally thought I would be. In September I had to declare my final major and took their advice. And I also learned that the most surprising people could surprise you. The most Alex Keatonish, African American intern, knew who King Crimson was. And my own father, had denounced the traditional political party of his demographic, and became a Republican. On the last day of the internship, even though I had left early, I was stuck on the subway, and so was afflicted with LPT again, and was a little bit late for our closing lunch. I paused in front of the door to the conference room. I was afraid. Had I missed it? Maybe they took our final photograph without me because I really wasn't like them and they knew it but I took a breath and opened the door and when I did eleven smiling faces waved at me and told me hurry up Michelle hurry up we're going to take a picture and we they, we saved you a spot right here in the front they told me that they told a photographer to wait please because the picture would not have been the same without me the Dr. Pepper concerts wouldn't be the same either A man named Donald Trump announced that he would renovate the skating rink where the old concert had been held. And Miller Beer would sponsor the next summer's program. It was the 80s, and it was called Progress. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Those were clips from King Crimson's Discipline album, Indiscipline, Dela Hun Ginjeet and Elephant Talk, playing under parts of that story. That album was from 1981. And now it's time for Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. We're going to burlesque variety show world for this one, and we're going to hear from an artist I've known and very much admired since, well, the aughts. (laughs) I just love saying that. Okay, so here we go. kids, it's time for Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. I'm in burlesque mode today. Oh, I'm so happy to get someone that I knew from back in the day when I was doing Carmen and hosting a lot of bur- burlesque shows. So um, our interview with today, uh, I met him at Rafifi, and that this is going back, a place that doesn't exist anymore, <laughs> doing a show called Starshine Burlesque with Little Brooklyn and Creamy Stevens. Well, they still exist, but the show doesn't. And he was also a fellow um, burlesque MC and a variety performer and a musician. And we both have something in common. We both grew up in the Bronx. We, so please welcome, <laughs> fellow Puerto Nelson, hey. oh, Nelson Lugo. Epa. Nelson Lugo. Epa. That's a word they use, right? Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we're the two Puerto Ricans that don't speak that much Spanish, so it's right. funny. I, I, I mis I mispronounce shit all the time. I get um, I like I get the inflections wrong. I transpose where you're supposed to have uh-huh. the 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 um the emphasis on words. Like chaka cha, chaka chaka. Oh, well. Well, I mean,
1: well, you are infinitely far more advanced in Spanish than I will ever be. I don't. I don't speak a word of it. But at that, all.
0: That's because I'm not. That's because I'm not afraid to speak it like the American that I am.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can probably. I know survival Spanish. I mm. can. I like can, matalo! Yeah, like I can. Kill him. If you drop me in like a middle of a Spanish-speaking country. I could probably get to, like, a bathroom and a library well, without too much difficulty. A bathroom and a
0: library. Yeah. That's
1: good. Yeah. That's good. Donde esta el bibliotec? That's
0: teca. Teca. <laughs> See? Yeah. So uh, when, when we met, I definitely was at, I miss Rafifi. What was the name of the guy that ran that place? He was a little strange, but he was so cool.
1: Oh, I don't, I don't remember. Was he
0: named Michael? I, and he did, like, films or something?
1: I, I have literally he, he, no, he no idea. He just looked
0: like this unassuming, like, quiet type guy who probably had this whole, like, inner thing going on.
1: All I remember was the platinum blonde bartender who... Lindsay? Yeah, who... Oh, she was so cool. I, oh my God, I had the hugest crush on her. I mean, who did it? She was a beautiful, beautiful woman. Yeah. But I had the Lindsay. hugest crush on Lindsay.
0: Lindsay! Uh, so
1: if Hope you're, you're listening. Yeah, if you're listening, uh, no Lugo, uh, I still think you're hot.
0: Oh my so God. Fun. Do You know, I ran into her, <laughs> I ran into her about a year or two ago uh-huh. in... At some other bar, and she recognized me, uh-huh. and I didn't recognize her because I think I was drunk. Shh, no. Not me. Never, never, <laughs> ever. Anyway, but no, it was really good to reconnect with her. Oh, good. So, yeah. Good, good. I'm, gl- I'm,
1: I'm glad she's still out in the world yeah. and doing things
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, And we're still out in the world and doing things, too, from yeah. burlesque. Yeah. With me, it was, like, performance art to burlesque to, like, storytelling to stories, and you do stories, and you do theater now, too. So let's hear about your journey. How did you start out as a performer? Um, well, I've...
1: Oh god, I guess I have always been And
0: don't say when I was born. No. No, 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 not at all. No, no, no.
1: Like I didn't basically I was on my way to become a uh, uh a paramedic. Uh, really? Yeah, like like be like an, an EMT um or some sort of like light duty medical profession, right? Wow. And uh, wow. that's, what I, that's what I wanted to do. and um, The truth comes out
0: on Fish Out of Iowa. <laughs>
1: exactly. Oh, uh, snap. And I, that's what I was kind of gearing towards. Either that or some sort of like, you know, a teaching degree of some type. You know? Wow. Um, and then the, my final year of high school, my sister and I made a bet. I can't remember what the bet is. But I lost the bet. And the punishment for losing the bet was to audition for the school play. Oh, because my because my sister was going to be the performer.
0: What high school? High school?
1: Yeah, this is high school. Which high school? Uh, This was actually in Orlando, Florida. Oh, okay. uh, Dr. Phillips High School. Oh, okay. In Orlando, Florida. And because she thought it would be hilarious to watch me audition for a play. And it probably was hilarious. And I just happened to have memorized the Shakespeare monologue for extra credit for English. So I'm like, all right. So I did it. I went in there and I'm like, fuck this place. Fuck this school. Fuck the fuck this stupid play. And I did my monologue, and I got the part.
0: <laughs> that is so awesome. Oh, my God. I got a part in a school play also by just being myself. Yeah. It's actually going to be in uh, the episode of Fish Out of Agua that runs, that's going to be running on the, tw- the 28th. Basically, oh, okay. basically, I, I'm at New York City Technical College. Sure. Just because that's what I had to do to get into SVA, because I fucked up in high school, like, totally, oh, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah like Didn't we all. And... Um, so some guy was trying to hit on me, and I thought he was skank, so I'm trying to, like, let him down nicely, say, you know, thank you, but sure. I'm sorry, I have a boyfriend, and I thought that was going to be the end of it, and he just kept insisting, and I just basically, like, reamed him out, cursed him out, like, full, <laughs> full force, picked up a chair, and I was like, you come in any close to me, I'm going to, like, hit your fucking, break your head open, and this teacher comes up to me, and she, and I thought I was going to be in trouble. Yeah, I'm, yeah, like, yeah. I'm like, you know, and I'm not, I'm not that young, I'm like, you know, 19 years old, and I'm yeah. like, oh, this is assault, whatever, I'm gonna get thrown out of school, my life is gonna be ruined.
1: You're gonna be
0: arrested. And and she asked me, can you sing? And I was like, I was so shocked. I like said, yeah, kind of. And like she said, well, audition for this play. She was like head of Theatre Works USA for that school. Oh my God. And I ended up being Adelaide in Guys and Dolls. And that was like my, my introduction to the acting book. Because I was threatened to beat up a guy. I was, t- okay, and meanwhile, I'm like, I'm like my size. I'm basi- uh, I basically have not changed physicality no, no, of yeah, in, in, yeah, yeah. In, in like the past thirty years. So, like, yeah, basically, that's, I'm like my size, t- like trying to brandishing a chair at a guy your size. That's hilarious. So anyway, uh, but like you, done- yeah,
1: it's no, well, I mean, but that, I mean, that basically snowballed into more high school theater, and then I auditioned to. Uh, to go to New York acting school, and I got accepted into a New York acting school. Wow. And then um, from there, I did the audition thing for many, 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 many years, and then realized somewhere along the line that I don't actually want to be an actor. Mm. And I was actually, in order to support myself to audition, I was doing a lot of cabaret open mics and a lot of cabaret nights, and just doing like 10-minute magic set for like well, 20 bucks. What were some of the
0: venues? Oh jeez! Like, um, did you do it at the the what was it called? Not the Blue Room. Was that what the hell was that called? The Blue Angel? Uh the, no. The this one a, that was like on White Street? No, 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 no. That was like I, the famous one. That was a famous. That actually
1: turned into La Scandal. Yes. And um, after after I started doing things at like I was doing things at like no Don't Tell Mamas. I was doing oh, things okay. at like um, uh Galapagos, the original Galapagos oh, I remember space. That. Yeah, the one yeah. the
0: one on Sixth Street in uh North yeah, Sixth exactly. in Williamsburg. Yes, I yeah. love
1: that space. Um and. And a, like a, a bunch of a bunch of places that had like these weird avant-garde, like you would have like a juggler next to a burlesque performer, next to like you know uh, beat poetry, next to like a ukulele player, and and so they just kind of stuck me in there, and I would do these nights Variety for like twenty shows. bucks.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Cameron Fungo used to do them too. Exactly. Yeah. And exactly. you get paid twenty bucks, and you do like a ten-minute or eight-minute bit. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs>
1: And yeah. I would do I would do that like twice a night, seven nights a week. Wow! And so you were making money. I was yeah. That's how I supported myself. Is basically that's just great. going to all these gigs and just twenty dollars a pop. And, wow! And before you know it, I got uh, discovered by a show called. Uh, Oh, gee, Red Hot's Burlesque. And then, I
0: remember the Red Hot's. Yeah. I used to host for them too. Yeah.
1: Um, and they was that kind
0: Scar- of, was Sinclair?
1: No. No. No, that was uh, Dottie no. Lux. Lux and uh, a woman who's long since retired, Veronica Sweet. Oh,
2: and, yeah.
1: Uh, they kind of took me under their wing. I remember and them. Oh they my gave God. me my first uh, hosting gig and then. From, and then from that, I started doing all the other burlesque shows in town, and then
0: that was a fun time. The slipper room, yeah. and and, yeah,
1: yeah, and yeah, yeah. Like they,
0: there was stuff going on. in collective unconscious, and there was just stuff going on. Yeah, everywhere. it was. It was,
1: bef- it was before the boom. Yes, and it was like the cusp. Was- Right, it was right there where you know a, a, a small handful of people, like twenty, thirty people, yeah. were just working constantly, and we all
0: knew each other. We, and we all were knew each all other, friends, yeah. and like yeah, everybody yeah. knew who was going out with who. When you'd go, <laughs> and you and you'd go to the diner after every Rafifi yeah, yeah, show, yeah. You'd, you'd go to that around the clock diner, and oh, I remember, I remember yeah. just like, like Earl Grey tea and a Western omelet, At <laughs> like three o'clock in the morning.
1: Yeah, and then and then I started producing my own shows, and then uh, that became a big deal, and. Uh, and then I produced a, a burlesque festival and then that became a big deal and Nerd,
0: nerdlesque right? Yeah
1: yeah, yeah. Um, well pop culture inspired yeah. burlesque yeah. and then so and then I basically kind of gave all that up because I, I just I realized somewhere along the line that you know I don't want to be a burlesque producer I want to, I want to be a, a performing magician and right. so that's what I'm doing that's what I've been doing for the past I guess, five years now.
0: And in between, you actually got to be a ringmaster for the Big Apple Circus. Yeah, yeah, I did. That was a complete fluke. Uh, th- they... That, to me, is, like, so amazing <laughs> that you got to do that. No, yeah, me too. Were you, were you the first Latino to ever, to ever have that role? In the Big Apple Circus? Yeah. Yes.
2: Whoa! Yes! <laughs> Represent!
1: Fish out of Agua brings you the first. Well, uh, yeah, the first ringmaster. There, were, there yeah. weren't a lot of ringmasters. Right. And so I think maybe I was the fourth um ringmaster were you that. the first latin yeah i was the first latin all guy. right yeah, yeah. it didn't even occur to me that was like well, a i'm thing, just wondering
0: yeah. i'm just wondering uh no.
1: but yeah no that that just kind of fell into my lap because they don't believe in understudies and the main guy got sick and their their usual backup was going to be in uh germany uh at the time and then their second backup was going to be in california shooting their a script that they wrote oh wow And so um, my name got dropped by these people and said, "You need to call Nelson Lugo. You need to call Nelson Lugo." I get the call from the artistic director. I think he's. I think he's pulling a prank on me. He's like, "Yeah, look, I'm the artistic director of the Big Apple Circus. I want to talk to you about the ringmaster role." I'm like, fuck you, who's, <laughs> who's pranking me? What show is this? Yeah. And, but no, I,
0: that's amazing. Yeah,
1: and then I, I did 20 shows
0: with them. That's, uh, and it that's, was the that's, time that's, of my life. Yeah, that's like an opportunity of a lifetime. Yeah, And, and absolutely. now I, I heard that they might not be gone after all. Like, There's some talks now to bring them back because yeah. um, the Ringling Brothers Circus is now going to be gone for good. Well, yeah, the Ringling Brothers Circus is closing. Yes, up, uh, in May.
1: For good, yes, for yes. good, yeah. Yeah, I
0: think the last show is going to be at NASA Coliseum sometime around Mother's Day or something. Yeah, something
1: like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, the Big Apple Circus filed Chapter Eleven about two months ago.
0: Oh wow! And, yes, and,
1: and no, that was as a big part deal. Of the, as part of the Chapter Eleven, when they auctioned off the assets, there's a there's a circus company based out of Sarasota, Florida, that bought the whole thing, Kit Kabuto, with the with the idea to bring it back to New York.
0: Really? Yeah. Are they gonna bring back the Clown College?
1: I don't know. Are they gonna uh, bring
0: back the 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 one the, the, the um the people that do the stuff in the hospitals with the kids?
1: That's a separate company now. Okay. They, they well, actually, what is that called again? That that's called Healthy Humor. Oh, okay. And I said
0: Clown College, but I, 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 that was the not clown correct. doctoring. Yeah, clown yeah. doctoring. Because yeah. Clown College, I think, is a Ringling thing. That's I a Ringling thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I stand corrected. Yeah, the, the
1: the women who managed the clown doctoring for Big Apple, uh, basically separated from them from Big Apple before the Chapter Eleven filing. And started their own company called Healthy Humor. Oh wow! Um, And so they're doing the same work; it's just a different company.
0: Well, that's that's hopeful. I I, I, I like. We need circus. We need variety arts. We need sideshow. We need things that are not the mainstream because people need to be able to run away to do something. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, you, you run away to do what are you gonna do run away run, run, run away to work for a corporation yeah I mean come on Man. well I I'm just I'm, gl- I'm glad that that the big Apple back. yes are coming I am back very back. glad that they're, that I'm, they're I'm coming very, back very I, I, I yeah. wishing for the best for them that, that they employ yeah. all our friends yes
1: <laughs> well I mean it's, it's, because, it's no. unlikely that I would get hired no. but I did but the, the fact that it's back it, it means a lot to they,
0: me. I hope they employ a lot of people that we know so this way oh, they sure. work oh absolutely yay. yeah yeah
1: or little, I mean they'll employ a lot of people I know yeah definitely. yeah
0: yeah 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 um so let's talk about your, your solo performance and your theater work, and, and you've been doing solo work for like, a, what, about five years now? Uh, about. And, and when did you get into storytelling? Um, I guess I've always been a storyteller,
1: but I didn't, That's re- true. I didn't realize it was a, a thing. Like, I didn't realize it was mm. a formalized...
0: Like, you never did the moth, No, did you? No, I,
1: well, I did. Um, oh, okay. I did, I did the moth a few times. I never oh, won. Oh, okay. Um, I, I got I thought, really, really close, but...
0: Oh, for some reason, I thought you had never gone to a story slam. No, well, I mean,
1: because... I mean, I've I've always been the kind of person who told stories on stage. I didn't I just didn't realize it was an actual it was a thing thing an art form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, and so I just I started uh, meeting all of these different storytellers. They would talk about the moth. So I started going to the moth a few times, and it was a wonderful wonderful experience. From that, I. Uh, Wrote a show called Gathering the Magic I remember that show, it was at the Tank Yeah, yeah Also, the Tank is an awesome theater, people I love the Tank Theater, they've been my home away from home for a long time Yeah, they're really nice people Uh, Quality humans Absolutely, and then, I guess based on the success and everything that I learned from Gathering the Magic I now am pouring into this new show called Cheating Death
0: Ah, and um, you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, yeah, I mean And it's a very personal show well, both of them are. I mean, they're both. Yeah. They're both. Yeah. They're, they're, they're both um, it's essentially a show where I share a slice of life story from my life, and I pair it up with a magic trick at mm-hmm. the end. So it's kind of like a story plus a magic trick plus a story okay. plus a magic trick, and um, and gathering the magic is a very sweet, very sincere show and can be vulnerable, but it's a very safe kind of vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, cheating death is is a very raw, very emotionally. Um, so, vulnerable so, show. So
0: like Nelson Light and Dark. <laughs> yes, like,
1: exactly. Right. Well, it's, it's basically uh, Chitting Death is uh, all the stories are about um, loss or grief or pain uh, or a death, either either literal or, or metaphorical. Okay. And, um, and I pair it up with, uh, you know, magic tricks that extend the metaphor. At least that's the hope. That's amazing. Now,
0: I can't wait to see it. When is it going to be? Uh, well, I'm doing a staged
1: reading of it on March 11th. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's coming up real soon. It's yeah. In the next couple of weeks. Yeah. At the Tank. It's 9.30. Um, it's only $5, so if you guys want to come see it, then come see it. Um, it is, I mean, it's still a work in progress. Mm-hmm. Um, but hopefully... You know, I have I have some producers and some directors who are going to be in the audience. Okay. And so, hopefully, if they like what they see, so then have a so
0: then after March 11th, there may be something else happening.
1: Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I wow. mean, well, the, the plan is to get a run, so we'll see. Yeah. If, in in what capacity that is, I don't know.
0: So. Nelson, that's awesome. So um, and, and no, that is just like I'm so happy that, that you got to be here. Yay! Yeah. So like from the Bronx to to to, to yeah. like being working artists, man. <laughs> And like, no, seriously. It's yeah, like yeah. we've d- we done good, and we're doing good. I think, I think we did all right. We're doing good. Yeah, we got it out. All right. This has been Fish Out of Agua with Nelson Lugo. Uh, be safe, Internets. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Our next story is going to take place during the infamous summer of 1982, on a day where my family didn't really have much choice at all about the way Things and events were going to turn that day, but somehow it turned out all right. Like this song from Devo. And now, chapter 35 from Fish Out of Agua. Redemption Birthday. When the 80s started, my father lost his job. The construction company he'd worked for closed down virtually overnight and moved to North Carolina. He didn't work again for two and a half years, and it turned him from a lifelong Democrat into what he called of a Pueblo Rican. We endured welfare surplus food. Ugh peanut butter that tasted like the can it came in, cheese that tasted like mutant Velveeta combined with spackle, and various powdered food products that none of us dared talk about or open the package. My mother's occasional forays into speeching now centered on prosperity and blessings, as opposed to condemnation and venom. And then, one afternoon, a middle-aged custodian hit the new legal number, otherwise known as, and forever known as, Lotto, took his million-plus dollars and retired. And somehow, my father ended up with his job at the courthouse on 100 Center Street, where law and order would be filmed years later. But this was 1982, and my father's days were spent screwing in light bulbs and following around the police and detectives all day, picking up the trash they left behind my father would bag it all up and put it out on the back on Baxter Street to be picked up. And one day after work, he was going to bring us some um, Vietnamese food from Mulberry, the restaurant on the corner, and he left the courthouse from the back, Baxter Street way, and he saw the neighborhood homeless guys picking through their trash bags. Hey, Rudy, they called out to him. They all knew who my father was because he would buy them coffee in the morning. There was Flacco, who was fat. Lucky, because he obviously wasn't, and Ching, who was, well, Ching, the drunken kung fu master of Columbus Park. Hey, Rudy, man, can you do us a solid? If you separate the deposit bottles and cans from the rest of the garbage, we'll cut you in. Uh, 10%. My father asked, what do you do with them? Ah, man, we take them to the Pathmark on Cherry Street. You can make up to $20 a bag. Come on, man, do us a solid and I can only imagine the ring of light bulbs appearing around my father's head as he did the math. Up to 10 bags a day, $2 a bag. Adding up the days, uh, yeah, uh, deal. So, in the wake of the first wave of Reaganomics, a new economy was born on Baxter Street. My father sometimes made up to an extra 100 Dollars a week. Until one day Flacco disappeared and Lucky and Ching, being small, skinny, and quite likely in the final ravages of alcoholism, couldn't handle the load by themselves. And it was fully summer when he finally saw the two of them together in Columbus Park again and said, where you guys been? You gotta come get the cans out. Yeah, man, we do it, we do it. Give us time, man. Only my father had run out of time, because later that same afternoon, When my father's boss opened up the storeroom, he saw all the bags and told my father that he had to get them out of there, or else. And that evening, my father went back to Columbus Park after he got off work, found Lucky, and told him he'd pay him to get the bags out of there. All right, man, no problem. i meet you at uh, 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. Tomorrow? Tomorrow's Saturday. Oh, all right. That Saturday morning happened to be my 22nd birthday, and my father was going to take the family to Carmine's Seafood Restaurant at the new South Street Seaport for lunch. And early that morning, as we were having breakfast, he said, uh, Michelle, Kevin, we, uh, we need to leave now. You and your brother have to come to work with me first. I need some help with something. So we went to the courthouse and went downstairs into my father's storeroom and Found it filled top to bottom with huge black industrial garbage bags. Just just help me get this load up upside. It's light. They're empty. Bottles and cans. It's fine. It's fine. And someone's going to come and get it, and then we can go. We carried all the bags outside, and we lined them up, and we waited, and we waited, and we waited. After a while, Ching passed by. I knew because my father called him by name. And Ching asked my dad for a quarter. My father brushed him off. ''Ching, was Lucky? You guys got to take these bags. I can't keep them inside anymore.'' And Ching said, ''Hey man, not my problem.'' My father just turned to us then and said, ''Okay, to hell with this. We're just going to leave the bags. Let's go.'' As we were dragging the bags up to the curb, a cop, who obviously had been watching us the entire time, came over and told my father, ''You can't leave those bags there.'' And my father said, ''Well, I can't bring them back inside.'' And the cop answered, hey man, that's not my problem. My father turned around to offer Ching $20 to take the bags, but of course, Ching was long gone. So we had no choice but to take the bags ourselves. We loaded them into a wheeled canvas dumpster that looked like the biggest shopping cart you ever saw. And my father said, look, we'll just bring the cans to Pathmark and someone there will take them, okay? It'll be fine. It took all three of us to maneuver that huge canvas dumpster chock full of garbage bags the 15 or so blocks from Center Street to Cherry Street and the FDR. And all along the way, people were looking at us funny. My brother was almost crying from humiliation, and my father was quite visibly pissed. I was okay with it, and I thought it was kind of punk, actually. And when we finally made it to Pathmark, my father saw Lucky and grabbed him and said, you gotta take the cans. But Lucky told my father to fuck off. Yeah, of course he did. Lucky was homeless. He had already done his cans and gotten his $50 and was happily drunk at 11 o'clock in the morning, so why should he do any more work? My father was so angry, he himself used the F word, something he almost never did. Fuck, fuck, fuck this. Fuck it. We're leaving them here. Let's go. But as we started unloading the canvas dumpster, the same cop, who must have followed us all the way from Manhattan Criminal Court came over and said, You can't leave them here. And my father said, well, What am I supposed to do with them? And the cop, like the grim reaper, raised his arm, stretched out his hand, and pointed across the parking lot to the row of redemption machines and the lines of homeless people standing in front of them. My brother couldn't take it anymore and really started crying. But with the cop watching us, though, we had no choice. So we took our bags and took our place in line among the homeless. It wouldn't have been so bad if it hadn't have been July and the cans hadn't been so sticky and so many yellow jackets buzzing around my red head. And after doing a bag, or well, maybe two, my brother refused to do any anymore and walked over to the side of the parking lot and sulked. And I walked right over to him and said, "'Why are you being such a pussy?' I'm the one spending my birthday with homeless people." His answer? was to throw a can at my head. I went back to the redemption machines. My dad was kind of slow at it, but for some reason, I got the hang of it right away. You just toss the can in the slot and press the button. For every five cans, you get a quarter. And it got to where I was doing two machines at a time, right and left handed. And I was so quick, some of the men on the line offered me a cut if I'd do their bags. I looked over at my father, who I knew was keeping an eye on me the entire time, and it never crossed my mind that I may have been the only female under 40 to ever grace the Pathmark Redemption Center. And even though I had turned 22, I still looked about 15, and with my black jeans, Doc Martens, and Devo t- T-shirt, not to mention my new flock of seagulls haircut, they all probably thought I was a boy. I said, Okay. And on top of the bags we brought, I maybe did an extra five. And as promised, the men who gave me the bags came back and gave me my cut. Some of them looked at my father and nodded. I guess they thought that he had brought me up right. By the time we finished all the cans, it was three o'clock and we had made over a hundred dollars in quarters. Which we still had to split up the change and stand on yet another line to redeem the quarters. And by then, it was... After four o'clock, and my father finally said, Okay, let's go eat. We wheeled the dumpster back to Center Street, which went a lot quicker now that it was empty, and turned around and walked back to the seaport. Only now, we were all filthy. Our hands were black and sticky. My brother's new white New Balance sneakers were new and white no longer, and the fronts of our shirts were disgusting. The People were looking at us. We looked homeless. My father said, okay, I'm going to buy you some new clothes. So we went to the new Pier 17 shopping mall where he took us to the Gap. 40% off. Let's go. My brother smiled for the first time all day. And now I wanted to cry. The Gap? No, the shame. But I had no choice. My father bought us all new t-shirts and jeans. Lucky for me, they had black. And we all went to the public restrooms to clean up and change. As I was washing my hands and arms in the ladies' room, a couple of women looked at me with averted eyes, and I resisted the temptation to ask them for a quarter. When we finally got cleaned up and went to carmines, we had lobster fra diablo, veal marsala, eggplant parmesan, and zabaglione with ricotta cheesecake. After all, it was my birthday. Oh, my mother, ah, uh, she never made it down for the dinner. Because between Lucky and Ching and the cop and the cans, my father had forgotten all about her and that he was supposed to call her and so she could get downtown and meet us. And when he finally remembered and called from outside the restaurant on the payphone, my brother and I swore we could hear how angry she was from where we were sitting inside the restaurant. When my father came back in, he joked that well, between the dinner and the new clothes, we wouldn't have had a lot of money left over for her to eat anyway. And then we were done. We walked up Fulton Street back to the subway. My father and Kevin were going back up to the Bronx, my father carrying a large uh, bag of goodies for my mom, hoping to make up for her. And as for me, I was going to go to the Prince Street Bar in Soho to meet Pasha and my friends. And standing on a corner, we passed, who but the same cop who had been the catalyst to all the events that day. As we passed him, he unwrapped a piece of gum and tossed the wrapper into the street. And my father walked right up to him and said, Hey, you can't leave that there. The cop looked at my father for a long moment, bent down, picked up the wrapper, stuck it in his pocket and said, All right, even. And as we walked away, my brother asked, Daddy, you know that guy? Who, my father said, Officer Coletti? Yeah, he works at the courthouse. I used to pick up his cans all the time. <laughs> Not anymore. I saw my father in a totally different light that day. Like I'd soon learn with my brother Kevin's conversion to yuppiehood. Sometimes the people you think you know the best, you don't really know at all. And my father whistled all the way back to the subway. There was a bit of the specials 1979's Concrete Jungle playing behind a little bit of that story. And that's our show. This has been Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. If you liked what you've heard today or on a past episode, sponsor us. There's a little green button at the bottom of the Fish Out of Agua page on RadioFreeBrooklyn.com that says, Sponsor this show. Click on it and let Patreon take care of the rest. You can do it for as little as a dollar per episode. Hey, the cost of a couple of bottle rockets in Chinatown back in 1982. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next and we'll leave you with this song that kind of encapsulates my mood and the feelings of a lot of people I know lately, if you get what I mean, from Uprising and Barb Marley in 1980. See you next week!
3: I've a little to guide From the bottom this bit But my